0: these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator. Oh All right. Welcome back to the next episode of the BC Law Just Law podcast. I'm Tom Blakely. We're here today with Professor Fred Yen of uh, BC Law. Professor Yen, how are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Great. Uh, we're here today to talk about, uh, you know, the, this, this case that's come out of the Supreme court regarding the NCAA. I know that, you know, sports are exciting, particularly, you know, college sports. And I know it's been a, a sort of a flashpoint issue over the last few years, really sometime, particularly over the last few years. Uh, you know, the extent to which the NCAA, of course, uh, prohibits or I guess prohibited. Um, you know, student athletes from being able to, you know, be, be compensated in some way, shape, or form, um, you know, from their involvement in college sports This has obviously been something that's been, um, you know, debated quite a bit. And the Supreme Court's finally, you know, ha- had its say on this issue that's obviously uh, going to chart a new course for the way that, you know, college athletes are now able to, you know, receive some type of compensation um, from their involvement in sports. Before we talk about the case, uh, tell us about yourself.
1: Well, I've taught at Boston College Law School for over 30 years. Uh, my principal area of expertise is intellectual property, copyright law specialty. I uh, teach torts, and I teach a sports law class as well.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Um, so I guess getting into this case, so NCAA versus Alston uh, is, is, is the case here. Um, so I guess just tell us a little bit about the, the background of the case. I mean, I know obviously, you know, the issue of whether or not athletes uh, should be paid is not a new debate um, by any stretch of the imagination. But, you know, finally, after you know, a good number of years here, um, you know, we finally are at this point where a case came before the court, um, as it's, you know, presently constituted, looked at this and said that, you know, uh, things need to change. And so now, you know, the NCAA, uh, you know, uh, Emmert, obviously, the, the the leadership there and a lot of people are figuring out kind of what things are going to look like um, going forward. But but how did we get to this point? I know that, you know, things have been the way that they were, the status quo kind of was um, as it was for, for, for some time in terms of college athletes not being able to be compensated at all, and even, you know, facing You know, punishment and sanctions if they were found to be, you know, profiting under the table or behind the scenes. And, you know, now, uh, you know, it seems like we've gotten to the juncture where, you know, enough was enough. But how did we get to this point where, you know, change was uh, necessary?
1: Well, the background for the case, as you mentioned, is the NCAA's insistence that college athletes be amateurs. Mm -hmm. However, that is to be defined, because, of course, they don't do it for nothing. Many Mm -hmm. of them do get something. And so, What does that mean to be an amateur is something that the NCAA has always been changing. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, it, it changes every few years, it seems. Now, the direct background for the case is that at some point, NCAA athletes wanted a declaration that the NCAA's restrictions on their being paid, if you will, needed to change. They wanted a declaration that that was a violation of the antitrust law. And this probably really begins back in a famous case that many people have heard about, the case brought by Ed O'Bannon, in which he contended that NCAA restrictions prohibiting athletes from profiting from their name, image, and likeness were a violation of the antitrust law. Now, he won that case, uh, both in the district court and at the Ninth Circuit. But, and this is a theme that will come back, uh, the... Approach taken by the district court and affirmed by the Ninth Circuit was what I might call extremely incrementalist. There was a declaration that there was a violation of the antitrust law, but the remedy was very small compared to what it might have been. So instead of saying, well, open season, athletes can profit from their name, image, and likeness in any way they want, what really ended up happening after the Ninth Circuit was done with it was that The NCAA was forced to raise the limit of what it allowed institutions to give to their athletes as their educational scholarship benefit. After the O'Bannon case was decided, this other case came along, in fact, and, and this is the case that ultimately gets to the Supreme Court, in which athletes are now not only complaining about the name, image, and likeness requirement, but about all of the restrictions that the NCAA places on athlete compensation. And that's the case that the district court decides somewhat in favor of the plaintiffs and ultimately arrives at the Supreme Court.
0: Now, you know, going back just a little bit, so obviously the NCAA has had a, you know, longstanding position that, you know, college athletes are amateurs, as you say. And as you say, you know, however that you know sort of is to be defined. But, you know, for amateurs, the NCAA certainly made, you know, quite a bit of money off of, you know, the exhibition of what they describe as amateur athletes. But sort of that policy regime that was in place for a long period of time that, you know, college athletes cannot be paid. They're amateurs. You can't profit off your jersey or your name or, you know, in any way, shape or form. What was, I, I guess, the, the NCAA's rationale um, for, for insisting, uh, you know, insisting that that be the way that things are?
1: Well, I can give you the proffered rationale.
0: Right, and I understand there's probably a distinction between what they say and what, you know, might, might be the reality.
1: So, I think the NCAA's position would be that college sports should be primarily a recreational activity undertaken as an adjunct to an education. Mm -hmm. Education is really what the students are at college for. Mm -hmm. And if they play sports on the side, well, you know, sound mind and sound body kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And therefore, NCAA sports are really about people partaken by people who are interested in something else more than their sport. Mm -hmm. That's the first part, right? That's what colleges are trying to do. Now, when we get to the commercialization of NCAA sports, the huge TV rights for March Madness, Mm -hmm. for example, they would say further that the consuming public wants to watch amateur sports, not professional sports. So not only is this primarily about students who pursue sport as an avocation and not as a profession, but that there is a public demand for that kind of sport and that courts ought to permit the NCAA
0: to maintain
1: that system.
0: When a few years ago I think I saw say something along the lines of, well, well, you know, college you know, you, you have the opportunity to, you know, compete to become a professional. But you know, I think it's like one percent of NCAA athletes actually at some point have the opportunity to go to professional league. I know you've seen uh, you know, you know, stories from college athletes talking about um, having, you know, financial difficulty being you know hungry being you know having to go back and forth between practices and being in uh, i think i saw this one documentary at some point talking about some schools being registered for i guess you wouldn't say fake classes but classes that are designed to make sure that the student athletes are able to you know get whatever minimum gpa they need in order to you know compete because it seems like from the school's perspective at the end of the day you know these these student athletes are assets you know the, the schools and the ncaa make a lot of money. Um, off of the exhibition of, of, of sports. And it seems like, you know, the, the emphasis that's placed upon their education isn't always particularly strong, at least to the extent that the NCAAs had the position that, you know, they're students first. Um, so do, do you think that, you know, uh, and I know that a lot of people look upon the NCAA and, you know, the amount of just just really the monopoly profits in a, in a literal sense that they've made, um, you know, as being sort of you know dishonest or sort of duplicitous with regard to how the industry actually works do you think that you know that this position that these are student athletes they're students first we care about you know their education is really as genuine as they might have led you to believe
1: i don't want to accuse anybody of being dishonest i think that that's not a wise thing to do i think it's fair to say that the lived experience of Mm -hmm. many ncaa athletes whether in revenue sports or non-revenue sports is that the amount of time that the athlete spends required, you know, coaching sessions, practice, weight training, fitness, game, travel, uh, film session is 35 to 40 hours a week. That's, That's a pretty conservative estimate. And I think that for some athletes, it's more than that. And so simply looking at the number of hours one has in a week, if you've spent 35 to 40 hours a week pursuing a sport, which presumably makes you tired, so you need to rest at some point, the amount of time one has left to study is smaller than it would be for the general student body. Now, in fairness, some NCAA athletes are are extremely successful in the classroom, in, including in Division I basketball and football. There are people who make Very, very impressive achievement in the classroom. But we also hear stories, as you said, about students who have great difficulty keeping up in the classroom under those conditions, and in some cases, universities make it easier for them to stay eligible than it would be were they not athletes.
0: Okay. Um, now, you know, another thing is there's an important distinction to make between, you know, student athletes being paid in the same way that, you know, professional athletes are paid, uh, versus student athletes having the opportunity to see sponsorships or, you know, profit from their likeness or sort of these ancillary sources of, 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 revenue. Can you just help us understand, you know, the distinction, I guess, because the court does, you know, sort of get into this a little bit, you know, in the, in the case that, you know, it is acceptable for student athletes to be able to, you know, if, I guess, if, I don't know, uh, McDonald's wants to give me a sponsorship or something like, you know, versus being paid a a salary in the same way that a professional athlete is paid. Can you just help us understand that distinction?
1: In the court's mind, I believe the court is distinguishing being paid either for simply playing Mm -hmm. like a salary. I play for the Boston Celtics and they pay me a salary of $2 million a year to play basketball or being given prize money for winning a competition. I just won the masters and I got a million bucks. Um, And money that one might make because one is well known for being an athlete. Mm -hmm. In the court's mind, there is a distinction between the former. Those are professionals. And everyone else, I don't think the court necessarily calls them amateurs but they are distinguishable from those who are professionals uh, and that may have implications for antitrust law.
0: Okay. Now, you know, sort of another uh, facet of this that, that we sort of want to talk about is this idea that, you know, like you say, it's it's an antitrust issue, but at the same time, you know, you look at some of the precedent that the court cites in the case, when we talk about antitrust issues, there's a sort, sort of a handful of seminal cases that um, get brought up, but it is an area where there's not a lot of new law being made. I mean, you see uh, cases regarding railroads, regarding American Express, uh, of, of course, the you know financial, the credit card company, um but there's not, it seems, often a lot of new uh law or new case law on antitrust issues. And so you have, you know, whether it's this or whether it's, I mean, even if, if you go aside from this issue, looking at you know another big conversation in the legal and sort of political world right now is is, is big tech. You know, are these companies too big? And you have antitrust law that's that's quite antiquated. So. Is does the court or the courts have difficulty trying to get pretty old case law and apply it to some pretty novel issues?
1: Uh, when it comes to this particular issue, mm-hmm. I don't think that antitrust law is struggling. Mm-hmm. I, I think when we talk about how this might one might deal with Facebook or Google or something like that, that might be a little harder. Um, and and I I. Hasten to say that I'm not an antitrust expert, so I don't want to opine too far beyond the realm of sports. But the law that's being applied in the Alston case is the rule of reason, mm-hmm. which is the standard analysis for the overwhelming majority of antitrust cases. And it simply involves the plaintiffs have to identify a practice that they sufficiently demonstrate is anti competitive. Mm-hmm then the attention turns to the defendant, which has to say, well, it may be anti-competitive in this way, but it's pro-competitive in some other way that would perhaps justify uh, its, its existence, the restraint's existence. And then the plaintiff would have to show that there was some less restrictive way for the defendant to achieve the same pro-competitive result, uh, in other words, with fewer anti-competitive effects. And I don't think that that analysis is tortured at all to, to meet the facts of these particular cases. Yeah.
0: Now, could you just talk a little bit more about, you know, the, the, no, of course, this was a unanimous decision by the court. Uh, and, and talk a little bit more about the, the rule of reason. Uh, you know, we talk about antitrust and being anti-competitive. Now, of course, you know, if you want to do college sports, the NCAA is really the only game in town. So was the court saying that, you know, if student athletes want to profit from their image like this? they have nowhere else to turn since, you know, if you're at a college in America, you know, you're going to, be faced with the NCAA and its regulations, or is it, you know, anti-competitive in the sense that, uh, you know, student athletes, you know, when they they go to school, they're, you know, forced to kind of contend with whatever the rules of that, like, where is it that the antitrust violation comes? Is the NCAA too big, or is it that they're only the only game in town, or the rules too restrictive? How does the court arrive at that conclusion?
1: Okay, so in responding to your question, let me make sure that we understand exactly what is being considered in the Alston case. Mm And to separate that from name, image, and likeness questions, which are largely being pushed now by the uh, advent of state laws requiring leagues, schools, and associations like the NCAA not to penalize students for pursuing profit in name, image, and likeness. So that's something that's happening outside the auspices of antitrust law right now. In the Alston case itself, what is being looked at are the NCAA's restrictions on comp- compensation to athletes? So you, you know universities can't pay athletes for uh, participating in sports, and the limitations on what a scholarship or other academic aid can contain. The way the Alston case ultimately comes to the Supreme Court is it's only about the academic scholarship aspect. The players Chose not to push the larger question of payments in general, and so the opinion is entirely devoted towards the NCAA's restrictions on academic-related aid.
0: And why would you say that? You why, why do you think that the athletes chose, or you know, the counsel on behalf of the athletes chose not to advance that argument in particular, you know, the broader argument of you know payments to them generally.
1: Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, and so I'm purely speculating here. Right. First, it's not apparent to me that when athletes are worried about what the NCAA offers them, that a salary is what they want. Uh, remember, for the vast majority of NCAA athletes, salary wouldn't be worth very much to them because, you know, what's a third string place kicker on a football team going to get? It's not worth very much. However, the academic grant and aid is real money, right? At, at a public school, it's, it's worth tens of thousands of dollars, and it might be approaching close to $100,000 of dollars value uh, in a year at some private institutions now. And so they might care more about what they're offered there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's just speculation on my part. It's also possible that they didn't think they had the factual record to win on that issue on general payment. Um, And the last thing I guess I would say is this, that if you look at the progression of antitrust litigation against the NCAA, I think I would use the pace of progress as incremental. Mm -hmm. You know, O'Bannon cracks the door open by getting a declaration that some NCAA rules are a violation of the antitrust law, but the remedy given by the court means almost nothing. Mm-hmm. Then in this case, you get another declaration that NCAA rules are a violation of antitrust laws. And now maybe the remedy means a little something. But I think if we discuss it, it's it's hardly revolutionary. Mm-hmm. I, I think that in some ways, it's smart of plaintiffs to sort of ease courts into the water. Mm-hmm. Because if you said, look, it's open season now and Alabama can pay its players whatever it wants. Mm-hmm. and if Vanderbilt doesn't want to do it, well, that's just too bad for Vanderbilt, that courts would be reluctant to go that far.
0: Okay. Now, sticking with that issue for a second, do you think that this is a matter of, you know, the the, the right court looking at this issue? Do you think it's a matter more so of the right case coming before the court? Or do you think that perhaps, you know, the, you know, political developments, social developments, different attitudes have sort of been galvanized um, towards the side of, you know, student athletes being able to be paid? Because I know the, the court's decision begins with this, uh, sort of brief uh, retelling or reference to you know the first exhibition of college sports in America being this boat race in New Hampshire between Harvard and Yale, and so sort of between that point in time and quite recently, uh, the the rule on the books has been you know what it is that the NCAA can you know prohibit athletes from profiting, and now you know at once uh, things have changed. So how do you think that you know now 2021 at this point in time? We finally got to the place where you know this was possible. Was it the right case, the right core? I mean, it was a unanimous decision. Or have folks just attitudes towards this issue changed? Or is it some other thing?
1: Well, wow, that's kind of a hard question to answer because you're sort of asking for a large cultural observation as well as a legal observation. Uh, if one were to wind the clock back 40 years, mm-hmm. NCAA sports might passably have fit under the description, largely a recreational activity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a little money gets made off it by the colleges and the public is interested in watching it. But yeah, it's largely a recreational activity. Today, that characterization is really hard to stomach, particularly in the revenue sports. Uh, the size of the March Madness contract, the size of the BCS contract, the amount of compensation paid to head coaches and assistant coaches. I
0: think then Justice Thomas asked during the the case was that one of his questions, you know, why are coaches paid so much? I think there was like something along those lines. Like and the, I don't the, know if he
1: asked that question. The, the numbers
0: okay. are certainly quite large for for how these folks are paid.
1: Yeah, I mean they they make really big money, and mm-hmm. so. At this point, it's really hard to say this is primarily a recreational activity any longer. Mm -hmm. And and, and I think that that quite fairly, I imagine that the compensation of athletic directors at the top schools and the conference commissioners in the top conferences is also very large. Mm -hmm. And so it no longer feels like a recreational activity. And so it just feels right that antitrust law has something to say about commerce where the employees are effectively paid. Nothing but a scholarship.
0: Right, exactly. So, looking to the issue of, you know, sort of like trademark and intellectual property and in the, in the sort of the, the vehicles through which these student athletes can profit from or make some type of profit. So, obviously, you know, you've got your name, you've got your image, you've got, uh, you know, different things that you're now um, able to market. So, I guess what's involved in, I guess, from a legal perspective, if I'm a student athlete and, you know, I want to try to make some money during my pretty brief window to do so while I'm you know a you know public facing student athlete that's you know on ESPN perhaps um, you know a lot of these kids are like you know 18 so I assume these are not folks who are particularly um, you, you know going to know what to do will need representation so I know within professional sports you obviously have agents you've got you know the major players like Drew Rosenhaus and these other names that you hear but within college sports I guess is there sort of a new I don't know if you'd say industry, but is there now an opportunity for there to be agents for, let's say kids coming out of high school, going to, you know, going to, you know, D1 schools that want to try to, you know, take advantage, exploit, you know, the opportunities that are there because before those opportunities didn't exist. And now I'm just wondering, is there a need for more, I guess, like sports agents for younger people? Or is it, it, how do you think exactly that's going to work? If I'm coming out of high school, I've got a, you know, just had signing day. you know, know, I'm going to be a quarterback at Auburn or one of these schools and I I want to make some money. How's that going to work?
1: Well, the the short answer to your question is yes, Mm -hmm. there's a new industry that's been created. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a report in today's Boston Globe in which uh, reporting that Nick Saban casually mentioned that the new starting quarterback for Alabama next year has begun to exploit his name, image, and likeness. And the figure that uh, Saban was bandying about was near a million dollars. Mm. So, yeah, there's an industry here. <laughs> okay, uh, And that means there will be agents and other people involved. Okay. Now, I think that one has to... As one would in any situation like this involving intellectual property, uh, if one were a young athlete in this situation, to think carefully about exactly what is the objective. Right. So in other words, somebody who's a famous athlete, you know, again, you know, star running back for University of Southern California, mm-hmm. could probably make a few phone calls, uh, or have someone make a few phone calls, local car dealership, but you know, I, I you no. know, right, you know.
0: Whatever it Dick's is. Dick
1: sporting goods, I don't know, mm-hmm. whatever it is, right? And and land some endorsement deals of the sort, you know, I will appear in commercials for you mm-hmm. and you will pay me. Okay. But I think that there is also now the opportunities for athletes to start branding themselves for a lot longer. Mm-hmm. Not every athlete who is going to be successful in doing this is necessarily going to be a household name. Mm-hmm. So, for example, uh There may well be a relatively obscure player who's very good at using social media to, you know, give an insight to an athlete or promote him or herself, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, In some of the minor sports, there are very significant followings for figure skaters, Mm -hmm. gymnasts, uh, and those people can really think about branding and becoming influencers and stuff like that. And so that suggests to me a lot more than just making a few phone calls, but Mm -hmm. really a strategy for marketing oneself as a personality, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, it's a little bit like, I guess, a version of the Kardashians or something.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, Now, turning to, you know, sort of that point, you know, sort of the the economics of the issue, you know, you think about how, you know, the NCAA and all the different sports that kids can go to, uh, you know, college to to compete in. I mean, there's a wide array, but only I think so many of those sports are, you know, particularly, um, you know, popular or even profitable, obviously, you know, football, basketball, um, within the United States, you know, for football conferences like the SEC you know, the March Madness just generate massive amounts of revenue, whereas, you know, maybe some other sports don't generate near, you know, things. I mean, I don't want to go through and like pick on particular sports, but I think, you know, the, 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 the point is sort of understood that, you know, you've got some sports which are more niche um, in, in nature. And so now you've got, you know, obviously, you know, if I'm the quarterback at, at Alabama versus being someone who's, I don't know, doing, uh, I don't know, like some other, you know, more niche, more, um, you know, uh, I don't know, I'd say hobby, you know, a sport that sports basically sports you're not going to see on ESPN. Um, obviously the, the opportunity that's there in terms of the ability to make money is fundamentally different. So do you see, you know, this, this being an issue, not, I guess, turning away from the the athletes point, but within the schools, like if I'm a school, it's a powerhouse at, you know, football versus, uh, you know, another school, obviously the, 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 financial opportunities that are there, are going to be different so do you see that this becoming uh, you know problematic in terms of like i don't think inequality is the right word but obviously you've got some athletes in some schools that are in a position to make a whole ton of money here versus other programs that aren't really going to be able to compete that aren't going to have those opportunities do you see that being a problem or not so much
1: well it depends on what you mean by problem mm-hmm. so first of all um let me restrict this particular part of the analysis, let's just say to a, f- a sport like men's football or men's basketball, okay. where there's a lot of competition for big dollars right. in TV money and whatnot. Um, we already have substantial inequality in the NCAA in the sense that we have the power five conferences mm-hmm. who you know, get the lion's share of the best recruits and then a f- you know everybody else. Right. Um, to the extent that the antitrust decision in Alston Uh, and to uh, another extent, the uh, ability of players to exploit name, image, and likeness now uh, are outside the regulation of the NCAA. The direct consequence of that is the opportunity for different schools and different conferences to compete against each other in terms of the opportunities they provide to Mm student-athletes. For example, schools might, under the Alston decision, begin offering much larger amounts of financial aid to the point that the financial aid package becomes a little profitable. Mm-hmm. They could compete that way. And name, image, and likeness, absolutely. You know, uh, depending on the kind of person you are, maybe you really would like to go to USC or UCLA because that could be your way into an acting career, mm-hmm. even if you're in a minor sport or if, if you're in a major sport, but maybe not, you know, a real legitimate NBA or NFL prospect. Right. Uh, will that be a competitive advantage versus uh, Brigham Young University. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it might be.
0: Okay. Um, I, you know, another issue that I, you know, was sort of think about when you look at this is you have, you know, first you have this issue in you know the, the NFL and other you know sports where, um, you, you know, I know, um, you know, sort of you think about like the the Cowboys um, some years ago when you know Jerry Jones decided that he wanted to be able to have his own sponsorships, his own advertising at the stadium, separate and apart from. Um, you you know what the NFL was doing at the time the NFL you know sort of pushed back on that because you have this issue of you know the the league and then obviously I guess not the the teams the schools in this case have their own sponsorships have their own branding have their own opportunities that they seek uh, it's easy to see a scenario where that conflicts with some of the sponsorships that the athletes seek you know so let's say if I'm a school and I have a sponsorship with Nike but I'm the the, the, the you know the, the starting quarterback but I've got a sponsorship with Adidas you um, you know, you can see issues where some of these things can conflict. So do you think there'll be like a, a, a governance problem, you know, conflicts, difficulties managing this? or Because it seems like it's just kind of open season the way that it exists right now. Um, do you see any conflicts among brands and sponsors kind of being upset with each other or conflicting with each other?
1: There's the potential for some conflict. I'm guessing that we won't see a ton of it right away, but it mm-hmm. may come out. Most of the state statutes that permit athletes to exploit name, image, and likeness Mm -hmm. say in the statute that the schools retain some degree of power Mm -hmm. to prohibit the athlete from engaging in name, image, and likeness exploitation that conflicts with team contracts. Okay. Now, of course, what does conflict mean? Does it mean, well, the school's a Nike school and therefore you can't do Adidas? Or Mm -hmm. does it mean only that the school's a Nike school and you can't do Nike, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: right? Uh, If you have Dunkin' Donuts as a team sponsor, can the athlete do Starbucks? Mm -hmm. Can the athletes do Krispy Kreme? Right. Uh, The other, let me just, what I, I think is a really interesting policy question here is, also, when we talk about conflict, conflict for what reason? Is it conflict for reasons legitimately related to the conduct of sport? Or do these laws, or is our system set up so that the university really retains a lot of economic control over the athlete? So for example, let's just take shoes. Mm-hmm. A university might enter into a contract with a shoe company or you know, a clothing company that says we'll outfit the entire team in Nike shoes. Mm-hmm. An athlete might say, well, I want to wear Adidas shoes. Right. that could be for profit or just because those are my lucky shoes. That's what I wear. Right. Why does the school have the ability to force the athlete to wear the shoes? Now, I understand if you're on a team you wear this team, you know, you, you wear the team issued jersey and stuff, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure why that extends to something like shoes or sweatbands or things like that that aren't related to the conduct of the game. You know, of course, you know, dark jerseys, light jerseys, we get that. But does it matter what shoes somebody wears? And why can the school effectively sign the athletes rights away to choose what
0: shoes she puts on her feet? Right. Now, it's sort of, you know, going back to the economic issue in tandem with, uh, you know, sort of what's happened here with um, college athletes not being able to make money. You've had this other issue within the world of sports and within the. The sort of the legal world, political world of you know sports betting becoming more and more legal and more and more states. And it's as simple as being able to go on your phone and play some bets on some games. You know, for the longest time, um, in you know most of the country, that was not something you were able to do. But now it seems like one by one, in, in recent times, more and more states are uh, you, know, you know, Massachusetts has sort of resisted this. But now I know there's a, there's sort of a bill that's 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 come out that's being considered um, with, with respect to this, and it seems like that's kind of the direction that things are going in. And a lot of folks are concerned that. Um, you know, when, when you have gambling and, you know, obviously gambling something that um, has some 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 problems that can come along with it. If you've now got, you know, a situation where these student athletes are able to, you know, make money, you've got people, uh, you know, uh, betting um, on, on games. I mean, it's not hard to see a scenario where you can have situations where let's say there's a, a call goes a certain way in a game or an athlete does something, uh, you know, th- throws an interception. He probably shouldn't. I mean, you can start to see how when there's a lot of money that's being introduced into the picture and then you start applying scrutiny to these things that you could have controversy. You could have, I mean, I don't want to say corruption, but it does sort of open the door once you introduce money into the picture and you introduce, you know, gambling and sports betting into the picture of things going awry. Or do you, or do you think that that concern that some folks have is, is overblown or is, is it too early to, too, too early to tell? Or what do you think about that?
1: Well, the existence of gaming with respect to sports always raises the possibility of corruption for example match fixing in tennis there was a big scandal about that not too long ago however it isn't apparent to me that allowing athletes to profit from name image and likeness raises changes that equation in fact you could argue that it lowers the possibility because you know if you were a bookie trying to fix a game you've got a relatively easy mark if you can find a player who's suffering economically mm-hmm. and you're offering the player, you know, a few thousand bucks to miss a few free throws. Yeah. You, you could do that. Right. Mm-hmm. But if the player says, look, I, I can go to the local Starbucks and get a sponsorship deal there. Mm-hmm. Maybe that person isn't as susceptible to corruption. I think you can make that argument as well.
0: Interesting. Okay. Um. So I guess going forward, sort of looking at the landscape um, you know, ahead here for, for college athletes, I mean, this is sort of uncharted territory in a number of respects, um, you know, what do you see as, you know, particular, you know, just sort of, I don't know if you say challenges or, or things to watch um, going forward? Because now we've got, you know, this season that's coming up upon us here. And obviously everything that, um, you know, a- everything that sort of lies ahead. I mean, what kinds of things should folks being, you know, pay attention to as we kind of move forward in this kind of new and uh, sort of novel environment where student athletes are now able to, to make some money?
1: Oh boy. I-, I can think of a bunch here. Mm-hmm. One of them is, how is this term conflict interpreted by universities? Mm -hmm. It's not just an an antiseptic legal question. It's one greatly bound up with how do universities perceive their Mm self-interest. So, for example, one might think that universities will be very, um, will interpret a lot of agreements to be conflicts with their Agreements because they want to hoard all those economic opportunities to themselves. Mm-hmm. That that could happen. But there's a flip side. Every time an athlete gains public exposure in an advertisement, a public appearance or whatever, that athlete becomes a walking advertisement for the university, which is one of the reasons universities like participation in sports in the first place. It's free advertising on TV. So it's also possible that universities will be relatively lenient to athletes to allow them to pursue a number of potentially conflicting opportunities because it's free publicity for the university. So I think that's one thing to watch. I think a second thing to watch is the problem of enforcement or following the rules. Mm -hmm. There are two borders that I see as being really tricky. One of them is Pay to play, or pay for success, and the other is in recruiting.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so, for example, let's suppose that you were a hotshot young golfer. Maybe your name was the new Tiger Woods, and you've already won three U.S. amateurs by the time, or U.S. Junior amateurs by the time you come to college. And yeah, people are interested in you, mm-hmm. and they sign you to sponsorship arrangements. Uh, just what do those sponsorship arrangements say? Are there escalator clauses if you start winning tournaments and things like that? So th- there's there's lots of ways in which you can imagine this seemingly innocent sponsorship arrangements raising questions about pay for performance. The other is recruitment. This is not supposed to be a recruiting inducement.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, it's supposed to be something the athlete does on her own upon being enrolled in college. But for goodness sake, how can it not get into the equation? If an athlete asks a coach, say, coach, uh, what kinds of opportunities for sponsorships would I have if I come to your university? What is the coach supposed to say? Right. And how many coaches would say, I'm going to be totally above board and say, I can't say anything to you about that. Mm -hmm. And what happens if casual conversations, and I use the word casual, perhaps advisedly, are had between athletes and potential sponsors before enrolling in a school. Mm -hmm. How do we view those things? So I think that that's also uh, very interesting. And then the third thing that I think would be very interesting is to what extent are athletes, young people, going to be successful at avoiding the kind of exploitation that many young people find when they become celebrities right the world is full of hot young rock stars who signed initial contracts that were really very exploitative of them mm-hmm. the world is full of athletes who have you know gotten into bad arrangements with agents or managers uh, will college athletes have these problems i think that's going to be something that's a something to watch as well
0: okay now to your point about you know sort of pay per, for pay for performance do you think that, that enhances competition among athletes makes the sports better because students now they have a uh, financial interest in you know, performing really well? Or do you think it, it goes the other way to where it becomes exploitative or it becomes um, something that's that's detrimental to to the sports and to the athletes or um, maybe something else?
1: My, my general view is that someone who is a good enough athlete to be a division one college athlete is an incredibly competitive person anyway. Right. They don't need motivation to try to win games. They hate to lose. So mm-hmm. I don't think that's going to change that much in terms of how the games look. Whether incentives are good for people in performance, I mean, that's an age-old compensation question that professional sports teams have resolved. And yeah, in some cases we do provide Mm -hmm. bonuses for championships, all pro designation, whatever.
0: Okay. Now, the other point there about, you know, sort of uh, schools, sort of the role of of, of schools and, you know, sort of offering or, you know, sort of trying to um, enhance or market you know, the opportunities sponsorship wise that might be available at their schools, you know, compared to another uh, school that someone might be considering. Do you think that, you know, and I guess this goes towards the Supreme Court's decision, does the decision at all um, restrain or or, restri- or create an issue down the road where there might need to be some some governance over this issue? There might need to be some kind of management to, to prevent, you know, the sort of issue that you're describing. Does this decision prevent the NCAA from having any oversight at all over this issue or Uh, is there sort of sufficient latitude to where, you know, the types of issues you describe as you go down the road, if if there needs to be some type of administration over this to sort of prevent the types of things you're talking about, is the NCAA and are the schools still able to do that? Or is this just completely open season for the athletes?
1: It's not open season for the athletes. So this goes back to the point that I made earlier that the Austin case is narrowly addressed toward grants in aid or, Mm -hmm. or, or academically related aid. And that's all that it's about. The the court scrupulously goes to pain and say, we're not saying anything about the other stuff. And so that stuff, I think, remains an open question. At least on the face of the opinion, the NCAA could retain some role. Uh, They probably always will have some role that they could play in it. But how restrictive it is, is really an open question. So for example, one could read Justice Kavanaugh's dissent where, you know, he he expresses great skepticism about the NCAA's role. Mm-hmm. How many justices share his views?
0: Now you say, uh, when you just just for first of all, would you say uh, dissent in terms of- um, oh, I'm sorry, his yeah. concurrence. Concurrence, okay. I, I misspoke, yeah, is he Justice Kavanaugh's with his, yeah.
1: concurrence, yes. Okay, okay.
0: Um, so another question I wanna ask is, so, you know, when you kind of look, you know, again to the to the road ahead um with, with this issue in the way that you know student athletes are gonna be able to, to make money how and I guess it's something that's gonna have to be determined but you know you've got obviously a pretty narrow window to make money as a college I mean these careers are not very long um how do you see this start? is this something that you think will begin in high school does it begin when you get to college does it like I mean ha, this is obviously very new um for for the industry and for um you know student athletes in particular like what, what are some I, I, I guess because I know you know like when you Right. There's movies like Draft Day and sort of these different, you know, uh, the movie with Tom Cruise where he's an agent where there's a sort of, um, you know, romanticized, you know, you're, you, you get drafted by the NFL, you get all these people, you know, but for the student athlete going to college, how do you see this process working? Is this something where, you know, I, I signed to go to this school and now all these brands are coming after me? Do I have to go to college and perform really well? In order to develop a following, such that brands want to come deal with me, or how? Like, if I'm a student athlete, how can I expect this new world to sort of work?
1: I think it's highly individualized. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are surely female gymnasts who have massive Instagram followings at the age of sixteen. Right. The day they sign an NCAA letter of intent, if ever they do, they have a the st- a stream to monetize. If they haven't monetized already, in fact, some of them may be Olympians and are already mm-hmm. signed to sponsorship deals. Uh, I think it actually remains to be seen exactly how that's going to affect Well, it uh, uh, remains to be seen a lot of things um there are going to be others who will not have those opportunities because they don't become well- known athletes until they perform well in college okay. so it's I think it's highly individualized
0: okay do you see um just sort of wrapping up here you know the, the obviously you know you know an earlier point that that you know I, I sort of alluded to this idea that you know there's obviously some sports you know men's basketball men's football really there's, there's this sort of that inherent inequity between the men's sports and the female sports in terms of you know, uh, viewership and, and following. And obviously brands and sponsors are interested in how big your audience is, um, is a matter of inequality is a matter of, you know, uh, you know, gender inequity. Um, and, and I know this is sort of, um, looking way, way down the road, perhaps not that far down the road. Um, I, I guess, what do you make of, of, of that issue now that, you know, the, the door has been open for athletes to make money? It seems that it's inherently going to have an effect where the you know men and, you know, men's athletes and, you know, basketball, football, things like that are able to make enormous amounts of money, whereas females don't have that same opportunity. Is that something that is going to require something? Because we know that, you know, obviously, given the times we're living in, you know, schools are particularly, you know, in, institutions of higher education are particularly sensitive to these issues as you know much of society is now. And, um, you know, I, I know schools can't will sponsors to put money where they don't want to put it, but it seems like that's an issue uh, and it seems like it's something that might require some type of, I don't know if it's management. I don't know if it's, I don't know exactly what it takes the form of, but it seems like the door has been open for this situation where, you know, one gender sports are going to be able to be very profitable um, now for these young people, you know, as, as compared to the, to the other, I just, I'm not sure what you do about that or what's to be done, but it doesn't it seem like that's, I don't know, something's going to have to happen there.
1: Boy, that's, this is a big and difficult issue with mm-hmm. a lot of perspectives uh so i think that your basic observation is one that's worth making which mm-hmm. is it's entirely possible that those who already have the largest commercial opportunities will have even more uh, that that's not entirely a surprise in a gendered world a mm-hmm. sexist uh that has a lot of sexist problems uh there will be exceptions mm-hmm. i think there will be female NCAA athletes who are very successful at marketing themselves.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, again, again, maybe it's the gymnast or the tennis player or something like this that's really good at using social media that will actually make a lot of money mm-hmm. doing this. That's possible. I don't know it, but it's possible. Um, in the end, uh, to the extent that our society has problems with gender inequality, neither the Alston decision nor the decision to allow athletes to prof- to profit or rather the legislation to allow athletes to profit from name image and likeness is addressed toward remedying gender inequality so i i, I yeah if there's gender inequality in the society mm-hmm. those problems are still going to be with
0: us all right so another question i did want to ask is something we were talking about you know before we came on um with, with regard to the antitrust issue that sort of underlays all of this is is you know sort of looking at the market you know you've got the NCAA. As the overall, you know, sort of governing body of college sports, but within the NCAA, you've got, uh, you know, a, a ton of conferences, a ton of schools that all compete with each other. Um, and you know, as, as we we understand it here, this Supreme Court decision in, in NCAA versus Alston is very narrow. Um, I know that, you know, like for instance, when I I found out about the case because an ESPN alert popped up on my phone and it said something along the lines of, you know, Supreme Court says college athletes can make money. It's something that I think is very easy for. The public to interpret as you know being broader than the decision might necessarily be, um, so can you talk a little bit about that? Just within the NCAA, you know, the the real nuts and bolts of this, how it sort of differs from what a lot of people might think. Sure. So it's
1: very important to understand that the Austin decision is narrow in two ways. First, it's narrow in that it is about. Academic related benefits. Mm-hmm. Right? So the NCAA still retains the power to say people can't be paid a salary. Mm-hmm. But the NC2A has lost a lot of its power to regulate how much somebody gets as a grant and aid. The second thing to understand is that the Supreme Court goes out of its way to emphasize that individual conferences can have their own rules about what they will allow players to get in grants and aid. So for example, the Ivy League has a no scholarship rule. If the Ivy League wants to continue having that, they can have that. If the SEC wants to have a much bigger, more generous financial aid program, they can have that. And the reason that the court is willing to allow individual conferences to have that leeway is that no individual conference has a monopoly over college sports. The reason the NCAA gets in trouble is because they govern all of it. But the Ivy League only governs its eight teams, right? Mm-hmm. However many are in the SEC, that's all that are governed there. Mm-hmm. And the court is much more willing to allow those conferences to do what they want because they have to compete against each other. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly the point of antitrust law, to engender competition. Okay.
0: Then, now, do you think that that could create any, you know, I guess not confusion, but issues going ahead where you've got you know, certain perhaps more lucrative financial or economic opportunities within one conference, if I'm considering one school that's in this conference um, versus another, or do you think that that's something where the, the market forces sort of figure it out on its own? Or, I mean, it, it seems like that's an important distinction that not a lot of folks really understand.
1: Absolutely, there right. could be very different implications in terms of what a grant and aid, a scholarship aid mm-hmm. means at a different school, right? It, it could well be that at some conference, uh, if you get a scholarship to the school, it's rather limited. It could be that in another school, it's quite large in another conference. And of course, the the commercial opportunities that one might have, right, when we, we start talking about the ability of the athlete to exploit name, image, and likeness, could be very different in one place versus another.
0: Okay. And so I, I guess my, my, my last question would be, you know, just looking at that last, I guess, observation, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is it seems like at the end of the day, antitrust law, you know, the, the purpose of antitrust law and in the role of courts is to sort of maintain you know that 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 balance that you know sort of equilibrium where things are sufficiently um, competitive and it seems like just going off of that last point where you know if I'm a student athlete and I'm considering different schools you know now that is something that I'm have the ability to consider you know okay well if this conference has you know more lucrative opportunities than this other one well that sort of engenders some competition between the conferences where if I'm the conference and I'm losing top recruits because they want to you know, be able to make some money over here. Maybe now I have to change my policies to sort of reflect the market better. Um, Is that, you know, sort of part of the the court's rationale to sort of preserve that balance or is it just an unintended consequence that you've got so many different conferences with so many different rules that it it sort of sets this up?
1: I do think that that's what the court and by extension antitrust law has in mind. Mm -hmm. People should have choices. You have choices about the car that you might buy, right? Mm -hmm. How much you want to pay for it? What features does it come with? Uh, If you're a student and thinking about where you want to go to college and you're going to go to play sports, you should have some choice. It shouldn't be just a uniform package that you get everywhere.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: I think we should also um, pause for a moment to reflect on exactly how this is going to affect people. It's easy for us to imagine in our minds the highly coveted prospect you know, that everybody wants, Mm -hmm. you know, DeAndre Ayton or, you know, LeBron James had he chosen to go to college. Mm -hmm. Of course, those people might become the subject of very, very competitive bidding. They already are, right? People come to campus, they see the swanky basketball dorm that I think it's Kansas has, you know, Mm -hmm. they, they all have swanky facilities. So there's already this kind of competition that's going on for the top recruits. It's just that another element has been added. There might be a little bit more money in the academic aid, depending on where you go. There might be different name, image, and likeness uh, exploitation opportunities. But we have to remember that the vast majority of people who play Division I sports are not that heavily recruited. Mm -hmm. They may only get one scholarship offer or just a couple. And even if they are given those offers, it's not as if they're so high on the coach's recruit list that the school is going to start extending itself for that person
0: the last question i wanted to ask on that is obviously something that's um it, it existed um with respect to college athletes and money is, is there have been incidences and i'm sure there's many that we don't know about and might never know about of you know money under the table schools uh, coaches you know uh, putting cash in a you know brown paper bag and you know trying to influence things one way or another i mean there's I'm sure there's all kinds of stories that are out there and some stories we might um never know but it all sort of goes under the broader umbrella of you know corruption and things not working the way that you know we ought to tend to think that they should do you think that this new source of revenue for college athletes reduces um the role of that in sports or could it um you know maybe increase or have no effect on it
1: you're talking about the addition of revenue from name image and life right, right
0: in other words now that i'm not so now that i have other ways to make money as a college athlete That might not be so enticing anymore or maybe it still is
1: i think it's both Mm -hmm. there will be some people who are certain that they will have commercial opportunities and will say i will choose based on commercial opportunities i know i can raise when i become the star quarterback at alabama i don't Mm -hmm. have to worry about improper inducements to get me to go to any particular school right there will be others for whom uh endorsement deals may be proposed quietly uh, and lucratively that will fall prey to that. And Mm -hmm. I think that the NCAA will have a terrible, terribly difficult time enforcing this border between what's legitimately found by the athlete and exploited and what is put there improperly as inducement to attend a particular university. It's already extremely difficult for the NCAA to police imp- to police improper recruiting behavior now, mm-hmm. I mean, you, you, there's so many stories that one can hear that you know, in, in many cases, by precipient witnesses mm-hmm. that don't get sanctioned. That this is just another and perhaps potentially very large problem that the NCAA is going to have to fight.
0: Mm. All right, Professor Yen, well, that's all I had. Uh, well, again, uh, I'm Tom Blakely. It's been Professor Yen on the uh, Just Law Podcast discussing the NCAA uh, versus Alston case. It's going to have, you know, I guess, implications for us to pay attention to uh, in, the, in the years and the seasons that are ahead. So, Professor Yen, thanks again for coming on. Pleasure. All right.